Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 17 this morning. And we want to consider verses 1 through 8. Matthew 17, 1 through 8, the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, we thank you for your word now. I pray that you would minister to our hearts as we study together and give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, you note on the overhead, uh, we are in Matthew and the theme is Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to chapters 17 through 20, uh, the instructions of the King. The Gospel of Matthew builds to a climactic point in chapter 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say that I am? This could be a while. (laughs) Properly understanding who Jesus is, is all important. This is crucial to the knowledge of the truth that we must know in order to be saved. You have to know some things in order to be saved, what the Bible calls the knowledge of the truth. Well, the Gospel of John, what we call the Gospel of Belief, because John wrote so we might believe the truth, it builds to the climactic point of doubting Thomas coming to a New Testament saving faith, as expressed to the risen Lord when he said, My Lord and my God. Jesus affirmed that he had seen and believed. This, according to Jesus, is what it means to believe in him, to believe in him as my Lord and my God. Jesus then went on to say, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Those who believe in the same way as Thomas did, without seeing, are said to be blessed. And then John gives the purpose statement in writing the entire book of John, the gospel belief, Saying this, John 20, 30 and 31, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you may have life in his name. This is the all-important issue. To believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, is to believe in him personally. Exactly as stated by Thomas, as the flow of the immediate context indicates, namely as my Lord and my God. And this is significant because this is the exact answer that Peter gave concerning who Christ is as seen in Matthew 16, 16. Namely, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Furthermore, Christ said he would build his church on this rock truth building on the truth of who the Christ is as the divine Son, Jesus then foretells of his upcoming death and resurrection. And finally, building on the person of Christ, who he is, and the work of Christ, his death and resurrection, Jesus then presents the cost of true discipleship. We saw last time in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In view is a description of a saving faith commitment. It's the demanded response to who Christ is as Lord. Knowing the person of Christ and the work of Christ, a person must come to the point where they say no to self as Lord and yes to Jesus as Lord with the fruit or evidence being they then follow him. That was the experience of Thomas, 
And it is the experience of all true believers, as Jesus plainly said in John 10, 27, and 28. Well, those who thus commit to Christ will be rewarded in the kingdom. Uh, to become a follower of Christ will be worth it all. And to affirm this, Jesus said this in John 16, 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, the disciples had to really wonder at this point, what in the world does this mean? I mean, Jesus had just spoken of his upcoming death in Jerusalem. But now he says, there are some of you standing here who will not die until you see me, the Son of Man, coming in his kingdom. Well, how could that be? I mean, you're trying to sort this out. Just imagine me, one of the disciples, is trying to sort this out. He's going to die. We're going to see him. Some of us are going to see him in his kingdom. Uh, how, how does that fit? You die, you're not going to the ki- They're trying to sort this out. Well, the answer is seen in the next chapter, Matthew 17. The chapter division between Matthew 16 and chapter 17 is unfortunate because the flow of what Jesus is saying continues on into chapter 17. And here we see what Jesus meant by saying that some of them would not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom is that they would see Him transfigured in kingdom glory as a kingdom preview. And that's what we have in Matthew 17, 1 through 8. We're going to the kingdom. We're going to get a preview. Now, the ultimate goal for God's people has always been the kingdom. The whole flow of history is headed towards the kingdom. It's the great hope of God's people. The whole of Christ's ministry has been about the kingdom being at hand previously. Christ was the Messiah King presenting the kingdom, and the transfiguration is more evidence of it. Since Israel rejected him, the kingdom was put on hold and the cross now loomed large. However, on the other side of the cross is the promise of the kingdom. Jesus is still Messiah Lord and the kingdom is still coming. And the Mount of Transfiguration served to confirm this. It confirmed all the claims of Christ and everything that Christ was prophetically saying. So let's pick it up. The flow of thought continues now as we get into Matthew 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, Luke 9.28 says it was about eight days. There's no contradiction because Jewish reckoning often counted part of a day as a whole day. And Luke evidently uh, took into consideration a partial part of the day on on both sides of of the interim. About a week Uh, After about a week, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, who are often referred to as the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. These three uh, were with Jesus on unique occasions, uh, such as the raising of Jairus' daughter, and when Jesus was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of the three, John anonymously calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved three times in the Gospel of John. He was humble about it. He didn't name himself. So, so you know, it's me, guys. Uh, but he, evidently, Jesus did have a special closeness with John above all the others. 
You've got John, whom he had a special love for, and then you have the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, and then you've got the, the rest of the disciples. But in view here in Matthew 17 is the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And it says he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, traditionally, the Mount uh, of Mount Tabor has been called the site of this transfiguration. But most scholars doubt that. And the reason is because it really is not a very high mountain, right? It's about 1,900 feet. It's not a high mountain, not very high. Uh, for another thing, it's beyond Capernaum. And as we follow what's happening in the text, they're headed for Capernaum. So this would put them on the other side of Capernaum. Uh, another suggested possibility is Mount Miron, which is about 4,000 feet in height. So it is higher, and it's on the way to Capernaum. But the most votes go for somewhere on Mount Hermon, which is about 30 miles further north of Caesarea Philippi and rises up to over 9,200 feet. So it truly is a very high mountain. So, you know, different ideas here. Uh, here Caesarea Philippi is around here somewhere. Mount Hermon's a little further up north. But, you know, if they're headed back to Capernaum, uh, maybe Mount Miron, maybe about 4,000 feet high. So it's, it's high. Uh, Mount Tabor, on the other side of Capernaum, not as high. So anyway... Uh, this is, gets, like I say, gets the most votes, but it really doesn't matter who's voting because the precise location of this high mountain is not really known. Uh, Peter hereafter did refer to it as the holy mountain, as we find in 2 Peter 1.18. Wherever this was, uh, here's what happened, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, the word transfigured is the Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphos. Uh, it's the idea of an external change that comes from the inside. It means to be changed in form. Now, we use this word when speaking of a caterpillar changing into the form of a butterfly or a tadpole changing into the form of a frog. The form is completely changed. So it denotes a change in form. Uh, this would definitely get your attention. Uh, this same word, by the way, is used to describe the gradual transformation that is currently taking place in the spiritual lives of believers as we are being changed from the inside out. Uh, it is seen in our, in our lives outwardly. And we see this in Romans 12, 2 and also in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Same word used there. Well, Christ here appeared in kingdom glory in glorified form, as he will appear in the kingdom. His face shone brilliantly. It was like looking at the sun. And his clothes were white as the light. It was awesomely glorious. Uh, it is noteworthy that in the kingdom, we will evidently still wear clothes, or at least in this kingdom preview, Christ did. And... Uh, they will obviously have a, a fashion of glory, which will never go out of fashion. Certainly Christ, uh, in the kingdom preview here, was wearing clothes that were brilliant. Mark 9.3 adds, His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. This is the whitest white you can imagine. And then Luke 9.29 says, His robe became white and glistening, 
Evidently an appearance like flashing lightning, glistening. Indeed, this was seeing the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's a kingdom preview. Preview of His kingdom glory. In Matthew 24, 30, it says, At the second coming, Christ will come with power and great glory. In Matthew 25, 31, it says, The Son of Man comes in His glory, and He will sit on the throne of His glory. If you want a further vision of the glorified Christ, go to Revelation chapter 1. And it truly is awesome beyond comprehension. The commentators point out that the Mount of Transfiguration experience is mentioned in all three synoptic Gospels, namely uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not in the Gospel of John. Now, that seems a little strange, since John is the only one of the four Gospel writers who was there, and yet he didn't write about it. So we surmise, why? Why is this the case? Well, here is the common explanation. Uh, John writes with a with the strong theme of Christ's deity in mind. I mean, he begins the book that way. In the beginning was the Word, the, words with, uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's his emphasis. The transfiguration, however, serves to emphasize the ultimate outcome of Christ's humanity in glorified form. This is the glorified Christ man in his kingdom glory. And the unique glory of the Christ is that in Him, humanity now shares in the full glory of deity. And that will be on full display in His kingdom glory. In Christ's glorification, we have the hope of all humanity. We'll never be what Christ is, but we will share in His likeness, in the sense that we too will be in glorified form just like Jesus. Uh, we too will share in this kingdom glory. Just think about this. We have in Philippians 3.21, speaking of Christ, who will transform our lowly body. That's what we have here, lowly bodies. I know you maybe think yours is a little high, but come on down. Uh, It's low. Uh, We have lowly bodies that are breaking down. But he's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. We're going to get our body back. It's going to be in a glorified form. It's going to be glorious, like Christ's body. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't don't see it yet. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. As a footnote, Luke 9 mentions that as Jesus was praying, the disciples had dozed off to sleep. And then suddenly they were startled to full alertness at the sight of Jesus being transfigured and talking to two men who stood with him. And we find in verse 3 who they were. Matthew 17, 3 says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, this is interesting, is it not? Because Moses and Elijah had been gone for a long time. Moses had died about 1,500 years before this and was buried by the Lord himself in the land of Moab. Enoch and Elijah are the only two people in the Bible that are recorded as being taken from this life without dying. Now, my view is that neither died a normal death 
But at the same time, they did not go to heaven in glorified form either. That's the only way you get into heaven with a body, is a glorified body. And so uh, the reason for this view is that theologically, Jesus is clearly stated to be the first one to ever receive a glorified body. These Old Testament saints didn't get a jump on Jesus in terms of a glorified body, which is a body that is suited for heaven. Not only this, but Elijah is going to come back to life in his regular body and have a special witnessing ministry during the tribulation period as seen in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. I take it Elijah is probably one of the two special witnesses spoken of in Revelation 11. So here's the question. So where is his natural body between the time he went to heaven in a whirlwind and when he comes back in his natural body during the tribulation period? Good question. The question aside, and you want me to answer it, don't you? I don't know. I have an answer to that, so I'm going to just move on. Uh, the question aside, both dead Moses and Elijah at this point appeared in bodily form at the event of the transfiguration and were talking with Jesus. Again, we're fast-forwarded to the kingdom here. Uh, a kingdom preview is in view. And uh, they were still very much alive in the afterlife and here made a kingdom preview appearance. Now, we're not told how the disciples knew it was Moses and Elijah. Uh, there were no formal introductions, uh, as far as we know. Jesus didn't say, I'd like you to meet uh, some friends of mine. <laughs> uh, that's not recorded. Uh, maybe this is just a little sample of how it will be in heaven. Uh, we will just intuitively know everyone. We just don't know for sure how it will be. But it is clear that both Moses and Elijah were still very much alive, even in the afterlife beyond this life. They knew what was going on, and they had input into what was about to happen with Jesus. Notice what Luke says in the parallel passage. Luke 9, 30, 31, And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they're talking about his, his upcoming death. Now we'd like to know a few more details. They spoke of Christ's coming to cease, which literally means exodus, uh, which literally means the road out. Death is an exodus. As we exit from one place and go to another, you're going somewhere at the, point, at the time of death. It's an exodus. Uh, it's the road out. You're going out somewhere. And they spoke of Christ's death as being an accomplishment. An accomplishment. Uh, it is finished. Accomplishment. It had specific purpose. It was to accomplish specific objectives. And as we know, these were fulfilled in the gospel story. That Christ died for our sins. Accomplished. He was buried. He rose again. Now the question arises, why Moses and Elijah? Now, there's a lot of notables to choose from in the Old Testament, correct? Yes. What about Abraham? We might say, well, where's Abraham? I mean, he is the father of the faithful. He is the key patriarch who was the start of what became the chosen people of Israel. What about David? I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. What about the greatest of all the writing prophets, Isaiah? Well, we are not told specifically why Moses and Elijah were chosen, 
But many think, this is best guess, all the commentaries, this is common. The, the, the common thinking is that perhaps between these two, they perfectly represent the whole of the Old Testament scriptures called the law and the prophets. The law of Moses was given through Moses. The Christ was to be a prophet in type, similar to Moses, as seen in Deuteronomy 18. Elijah was a premier prophet who is destined to be the forerunner to the Christ in the tribulation period, who restores all things in preparation for the second coming of Messiah, which Lord willing, we'll get to next week. But between the two of them, Moses and Elijah represent the whole of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, which uniformly pointed to the coming Messiah and what he was to accomplish. By the way, this is part of the argument for why these two are great candidates for being the two special witnesses in Revelation 11. Representing the law and the prophets, their prophetic witness is strong. John Phillips summarizes the common view. His forthcoming death would fulfill all the sacrifices of the law, so closely linked with Moses, and all the sayings of the prophets, of whom Elijah was the supreme representative. Verse 4, Peter steps in. Yeah, Peter, you need a special speaker? Call Peter. Uh, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Should have stopped right there. Should have stopped. You know, it's not so much what you say, it's when you say too much. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now in sales, they say silence is deadly. And Peter seemed to feel this way. Uh, he was a talker, and so often he just seemed to think he needed to speak his mind. I kind of resemble that sometimes. Uh, commentators try to rationalize, why? Why in the world did he say what he said? It's really kind of silly to go down that road, because Luke 9.33 says, after suggesting that they build three tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, the text then says, not knowing what he said. <laughs> well, if Peter didn't know what he was talking about, didn't know what he said, uh, how are we going to analyze that? Uh, how are we going to figure it out if he didn't even know what he was saying? That's what the text says in Luke 9.33, not knowing what he said. Perhaps Peter was just spontaneously reacting, trying to keep them together as a group for a little while, because in Luke 9.33 it says, Peter blurted this out as Moses and Elijah were in the process of parting. So they must have been making like, like they were going to leave. And Peter blurts this out. Let's, let's, let's prolong this, guys. He was just talking. It wasn't a well-thought-out logic. It seems he wanted to prolong this experience with all three of these notable characters for a little longer. Hey, guys, let's camp out. Let's prolong this special time. This, this is really special. It's good for us to be here. Now, tabernacles refers to temporary shelters or hut-like booths. The Jews commemorated their exodus from slavery in Egypt, out in the wilderness, by having the Feast of Tabernacles. For one week, they lived in makeshift shelters, symbolizing God's temporary provision for the children of Israel in the wilderness. 
It was a memorial to God's preservation of his chosen people. And this feast will continue to be celebrated in the kingdom, as noted in Zechariah 14. As so often happens, Peter here was caught up with his own idea, uh, thinking it was a good one. Uh, He does say, Lord, if you wish, probably assuming the Lord would approve. It's easy to make our plans and assume God is good with it, uh, when in fact we might be completely off track. The old evangelist Sam Dalton used to say, God's not in the plan blessing business. Uh, God's the planner, you see. It's not up up to us to make the plans, but rather to follow his plans. And we often get way ahead of our skis with what we think are great ideas, only to fall flat on our face, which is where Peter was shortly to find himself. Now, Peter said nothing about building the tabernacle for the three disciples, by the way. What, What about them? Evidently, the idea is that these three tabernacles would be in special honor of the Lord, Moses, and Elijah, while the disciples perhaps could just rest or or sleep on the ground. Uh, But what Peter was suggesting, you see, put all three, the Lord, Moses, and Elijah, on the same level, which in effect compromises the Lord's supremacy. This brought about an immediate correction directly from the Father himself who demands that the Son alone be the priority, as he is an exalted category all of his own. Even though Moses and Elijah were prominent Old Testament characters, none can compare to God's Son. And so, while he, verse 5, while he was speaking, this is Peter, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. This was a divine interruption. You like to be interrupted? You know, I'm terrible at this. My wife will say to me, you're interrupting. It's it's true. (laughs) But this was a divine interruption. While Peter was still blabbering on, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. This represented God's presence, what is called the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah means to dwell and refers to God's radiant presence, which was manifest on occasion in the Old Testament. In their wilderness journeys, God's glory cloud, denoting his presence, rested above the tabernacle. And when the cloud moved, the children of Israel followed, as it indicated God was leading them. In various situations, God would make his presence known in the form of a glory cloud. This was known as God's Shekinah glory. In essence, this is what we have here in Matthew 17, 5. Suddenly out of the bright cloud overshadowing them came the voice of God. Now rarely, I can't emphasize how rarely in the Bible did anyone ever actually hear the audible voice of God. Now, it's become common in our day, just kidding, but people want to say this, you know, God told me as, you know, as as if he audibly spoke to them. Uh, I'm not buying it. Rarely in the Bible did this happen. Uh, And when it did, it was traumatic. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now, therefore, this is when God spoke to them out of the mountain back here in, in the Old Testament. Now, there... They're saying, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. 
Then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? This experience of hearing God's voice was so overwhelming, they feared they would die. And they did not want to hear it anymore. And they said, Moses, you go talk to God. (laughs) We don't want to hear it anymore. It's too much. And God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration had a very definite and clear message for Peter, James, and John saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. This is essentially what God the Father said at Christ's baptism, as we saw in Matthew 3.17. Let's look at what he had to say. It's a short message, but it's the all-important message. God the Father identified the Son as his beloved Son. And based on that reality said, hear him. In this whole surrounding section, there's a tremendous emphasis on who Jesus is as God's Son. This was the essential point in Peter's inspired confession in Matthew 16, 16, where he identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And even though Peter and the disciples perhaps had some idea of what it meant that Jesus was God's Son, it seems that they still needed to have a greater appreciation of it, as emphasized by God the Father here. This is key. Being the beloved son with whom God is well pleased combines the emphasis of Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. It emphasizes who the son is in terms of his nature, being that of very God. But at the same time, it emphasizes his submission to God as God's servant, with whom God the Father is well pleased. Now, sometimes, this is very common, sometimes people make the huge mistake of assuming that Jesus being the Son of God means that he is somehow less than God the Father. And that, my friends, is heresy. Yes, the members of the triune Godhead have different roles, but the nature of each person in the Godhead is totally equal. They are equally God equally eternal, equally important. To say that Jesus is God's Son means that Jesus shares in the very same nature and essence with God the Father. He is of the very order and nature of God, being God of very God. Note uh, the emphasis we have in John 1, 18. Jesus says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, in the most intimate of relationship with the Father. He has made him known. He has declared him. And he's the only one that's in a position to do this. John 5, 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Why? Because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father. And how did they understand it? Making himself equal with God. The Jews clearly and correctly understood the claim of Jesus to be the Son of God, that God was his Father, to be that he was claiming equality with God the Father. Yes, that is what it means to be the Son of God. It means to share in the very nature of God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1.16 says, Jesus is the visible image 
of the invisible God. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 5, 23, we see that all are to honor the Son, quote, just as they honor the Father. Only one who is fully God could possibly be honored in the same way as God the Father. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one, meaning they share the same essence and the same nature as deity. As you compare Scripture with Scripture... The claim of Jesus to be the Son of God clearly means that he is fully God, sharing in full deity. As Colossians 2.9 says, In him, in Christ, dwells that little word, all. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The full deity is represented in Jesus Christ bodily. So when God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, he was making the most powerful statement possible in terms of the full deity of Jesus. He is Lord over all and not merely one among equals. He's not merely some prophet or great leader. He is God himself come in the flesh. As God's children, we too are called sons of God. But we're sons only by adoption. In contrast, Jesus is the Son of God who is eternally the Son of God by His very nature and essence. Son is a relational term. Uh, God the Father and God the Son along with the Holy Spirit have an eternal relationship with each person in the Trinity being eternal. They share the same nature, being co-equal, co-eternal, and co-substantial. And the relationship they share is characterized by perfect love. God the Father said, this is my beloved Son. Within the Godhead is the perfection of love. As God's Son, Jesus speaks with absolute sovereign authority. I mean, when you call Jesus Lord, that means something. You're recognizing His sovereign authority. Therefore, God the Father says, hear Him. Jesus speaks with the authority of being Lord God. This places him way above Moses or Elijah or anyone else. Notice the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. He will speak with authority. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Just as Moses gave forth new revelation that introduced a whole new era, the era of the law, so Messiah would, as a prophet, bring forth revelation that would introduce a whole new era. John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All the doctrines that relate to the church age and what would follow are introduced by Christ in his ministry and then built upon in the New Testament epistles and then brought to a comprehensive climax in the book of Revelation. Jesus as Lord God speaks with total authority and his people hear him. When Jesus speaks, that ends the argument. At least it should. We are to reverence his lordship authority. We are to listen to him. He's unique. In the Great Commission, Jesus said we are to make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to observe all things that he has commanded. He's the authority. 
Everything lines up with him. He's our Lord. It's him we follow. He's our authority on everything because he is Lord over all. D.A. Carson says, compared with God's revelation through Jesus, all other revelations pale. Supporting, pointing, prophetic roles such as such revelation may enjoy, but Jesus as God's son is primary. Therefore, all must listen to him. Verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. They were terrified out of their minds. Peter went from babbling nonsense about all three equally, having a shelter built for them, to being flat on his face before the Father's awesome voice from heaven. All the disciples immediately fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. You know, God is an awesome reality and terrifying in his awesomeness. Throughout the Bible, people that had encounters with God, close encounters with God, where he revealed himself, were were consistently overwhelmed and terrified. In our humanness, we stand before him quivering in terror. And I've told this story, but it's a good one, and so I'll tell it again. John MacArthur tells the story about a charismatic church leader that he was having lunch with in the L.A. area. And as they were having lunch, this charismatic leader said to John, John, I don't know if you believe this or not, but sometimes in the morning when when I'm shaving in my bathroom, Jesus comes into the bathroom with me. And he said to John, do you believe that? And John said, no, I don't believe that. But what troubles me is I think you believe it. And then John said, I just have one question. Do you continue shaving? Because if you do, it's not the real Jesus. Amen to that. It is proper to reverence or fear God. It's the position of godliness. It is the wicked who in their blindness have no fear of God. However, God does not want his children to live in abject, tormenting fear. God has made provision to alleviate the fears for his children. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. But here is the point. God's basis and provision for the removal of craven fear is found only in Jesus. It's in his love that fear is cast out. It's because of his perfect love for, for us. And we love him because he first loved us. And this is exactly where the text goes. God spoke from heaven and the disciples fell flat on their faces in overwhelming terror and fear. But, and but is a contrast word, then Jesus came, verse 7, and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. What a beautiful statement. I love this about Jesus. He's my Savior, but he's also my fear remover. Time after time in the ministry of Jesus, we see him calming the fears of his disciples. Jesus is our mediator, and we find all in him to calm our fears in the face of the almighty holy God. The night before he was crucified in John 14, 1, he told his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is the prescription for a troubled heart. A few verses later in John 14, 27, he said, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Upon seeing the risen Christ, 
Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28, 10, do not be afraid. When John saw the risen Lord in Revelation 1, he fell on his face as a dead man. But Christ immediately put his hand on him saying, do not be afraid. Isn't that wonderful? We have every reason to be fearful and terrified out of our minds, naturally speaking. Naturally speaking, we are sinful. But God is perfectly holy. But in Jesus, we have a Savior. We have a Redeemer. We have a Mediator. And that makes all the difference. When Jesus steps in, He steps in to relieve us of our fears. On their faces in overwhelming fear, Jesus touched them. I love that. He touched them. And said, arise and do not be afraid. The touch and affirmation of Jesus made all the difference. Their peace was found in him. He is the prince of peace. And verse 8 says, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Thus God the Father made his point. Looking up, they saw Jesus only, which is the whole point. It's all about Jesus. It's not about making over Moses and Elijah. It's all about Jesus. The exalted Lord, who in the kingdom will reign supreme as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus alone is the Son, having the very nature of God. Jesus alone is superior to all others. Jesus alone is the one who speaks with absolute authority. Jesus alone is our mediator who conquers our fears. Jesus alone is to be our focus. Jesus alone is the full and final revelation of God. A great motto for life is Jesus only. As Colossians 3.11 says, Christ is all and in all. Speaking of us as believers. Note the two bookend emphases here concerning Jesus being the Son of God. This is the heart of Peter's great confession in, Mark, in Matthew 16, 16. This is the all-authoritative statement from the Shekinah glory as seen here in Matthew 17, 5. This is the major point being driven home in this whole surrounding context. Jesus is the Son of God. Hear Him! As such, He has a claim on each one of our lives. As God, He can say, You say no to self as Lord, and say yes to me as Lord, and follow me. Hear Him. As the authoritative Son of God, we are to listen to Him. He is the one who speaks to us with absolute authority. Peter never got over this experience of seeing Christ in His kingdom glory. It perhaps explains why in his two epistles, he has the second coming of Christ as such a dominant theme. This was the hope that was before him. John MacArthur says the message of his two epistles might be summarized as, quote, Fellow believers, don't worry about your pain, your hardship, your testing, your persecution, your sacrifice. Jesus is coming. That's all that really matters. But we should note one more thing. Peter, in his last epistle, referenced this Mount of Transfiguration experience. And this became a climactic part of his testimony. But then after recounting the Mount of Transfiguration experience, he said this in 2 Peter 1.19. Now it's interesting because you'll note both of these are from the ESV, uh, an earlier version, 
and a little bit later version where they, they updated it just a little bit. And the thing is, it can be translated either way. And there's a debate here. Uh, in 2 Peter 1.19, Peter says, after sharing about his transfiguration experience, their transfiguration, uh, Christ's transfiguration experience, and, and their experience there with him, uh, he says in 2 Peter 1.19, earlier translation, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, but then the later, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, which way should we take this? That's the debate. It's a little in-house debate on the nuance of how verse 19 should be understood. Should it be understood that the disciples' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration gave further proof of the prophetic scriptures? Okay, we got the prophetic scriptures. Now add this to that as even a further confirmation. Or should it be understood that an even greater confirmation than the disciples' experience is the prophetic word of God itself. Now you can make a good debate either way. And, and, and either way is fine because in a sense both are true. But I would lean toward the view, and I'm not dogmatic here, but I would lean toward the view that in the prophetic scriptures we have an even more sure testimony than that of the apostolic experience. This view says that scripture, trump, or scripture trumps experience. Even the experience of an apostle on the Mount of Transfiguration. The apostolic experience is a single narrative of a single vision, while the Old Testament provides multiple prophecies that harmonize on this subject. The Old Testament is much fuller and more detailed in its treatment of Christ's coming glory than is Peter's experience. In effect, the Old Testament has more prophecies, more prophets involved, and a broader depth of treatment, and is therefore an even more sure prophetic word. However, I quickly hasten to say, both are true. We have the certainty of a multifaceted prophetic witness in the Old Testament, and on top of that, we have the apostolic experience that is in perfect accord with it. For God's people, the goal is the kingdom. And the way we get there is through Jesus. You're going to go to the kingdom, uh, you have to be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom, Jesus told Nicodemus. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. We have prophetic truth that aligns with this truth. We have apostolic testimony that it also becomes scripture that aligns with this truth. It all points to Jesus as the son of God who will one day rule supreme in the kingdom as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the whole of the New Testament, in all the instruction given to the church, there is no mention, not even once, of the high praise word, hallelujah. It's the climactic praise word reserved for the most sacred of occasions, namely, the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the 1700s, after Handel completed the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah, it is claimed that he exclaimed, quote, I did think I saw heaven open and saw the very face of God. At the premiere of Handel's great work, when they came to the Hallelujah Chorus, King George II and all of his attendants rose from their seats in honor of the King of Kings. When Jesus comes in his kingdom glory, 
the whole world will in effect see Jesus only. All eyes will be upon him, and the whole of heaven will in effect sing the hallelujah chorus, so to speak. Now will be the time. We read about it in Revelation 19. And I heard, as it were, context is the second coming. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! There's the climactic praise word reserved for this time. Hallelujah, hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Who's coming to reign? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Today as God's people, we continue to pray, your kingdom come. Just as sure as Jesus gave Peter, James, and John a kingdom preview. Just as sure his kingdom will one day come in answer to our prayers. And in fulfillment of all the kingdom prophecies. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's stand and have our closing song.